Welcome everybody to our podcast series, Leading in a Climate Changed World. It's an enormous pleasure today to be talking to Dr. Jude Caravan. Jude is a cosmologist, a planetary healer, futurist, author, and previously one of the most senior businesswomen in the UK. She has journeyed to some 80 countries around the world, has experienced multidimensional realities since early childhood, and worked with the wisdom keepers of many traditions. Jude integrates leading edge science, research into consciousness, and universal wisdom teachings. As a member of the Evolutionary Leaders Circle, this underpins her work in raising awareness and enabling transformational and emergent resolutions to our collective planetary issues. She holds a PhD in archeology span from the University of Reading in the UK, researching ancient cosmologies and a master's degree in physics from Oxford University, specializing in cosmology and quantum physics. She's the author of six nonfiction books and her most recent is the Nautilus award-winning The Cosmic Hologram. And lastly, in 2017, she co-founded Whole World View to communicate the new paradigm of unified reality and with the aim to empower the understanding, experiencing, and embodying of unity awareness in order to serve conscious evolution. So thank you so much, Jude, for giving us your time today. It's a delight, Robin. Thank you for the invitation. And maybe we could start by just having you unpack a little bit some of the, the words and phrases that are in your very impressive bio. So you talk about unit, a, a unified consciousness mm. and also the evolution of consciousness and planetary evolution. And how do, you, how do you bring concepts like that into kind of daily conversations with, say, business leaders? <laughs> Good question. I think there's a growing readiness to, to hear a new story. And this new story of unified reality, evidenced by science, is actually an ancient story. And it's a story that, you know, the indigenous wisdom keepers have been our holders of remembering, whilst we've forgotten it in many ways. So now there's a convergence, essentially, of science and spirituality into an integral cosmology. And cosmology is really about understanding the wholeness of the world or of reality. And it's showing at its very foundation that mind and consciousness aren't something we have, they're actually what we and the whole world are. So just as Sir James Jean said, the universe is far more like a great thought than a great machine. And what sort of examples do you have of, of where you've been able to bring that kind of awareness, say, into the heart of a corporation? Or who, who is ready for the conversation like that? You said we're increasingly ready, and I imagine some boardrooms and, and CEOs are, and some, some are closed. But maybe you could sure. flesh out with, with a few examples of where you've been having those kind of dialogues. Mm. Well, interestingly enough, that the work that Frederick Lelou has done on reinvented organizations talks about three fundamental attributes of all pioneering, this sort of leading edge, what he calls teal level organizations. And the first is distributed intelligence. The second is a holistic worldview. And the third is an evolving purpose or an evolutionary purpose. And so interestingly enough, where I found leaders that have actually on their own inner journey, have come to an experience, particularly an experience of oneness 
whether it's through yoga or their, their spiritual pursuits, whatever it may be, then they tend to be more open to this and realize that a holistic worldview is really vital if we are collectively going to be in a climate change world and lead in a climate change world because the problems we have really arise from our dysfunctional behaviors which arise from our fragmented perspectives of the nature of reality so more and more people are realizing this cannot be a sort of tinkering around the edges and that it's leadership from an inner to an outer rather than just finding new techniques or new measuring systems or new modalities so the inner journey is critical and, and a regular we, inner practice, yeah. Sorry? And a regular inner practice. Right. Because without a, a regular practice, um, my experience is that people, they might come back to it, but the more and more and more we do this, whatever it is, whatever it is each day, that connection with wholeness, with oneness, with unity, that unity awareness becomes stronger and stronger and stronger. So instead of it sort of being a peripheral aspect of someone's life, it's actually fundamental it's foundational and it's the, then the being and the doing of that that's so powerful and what have you found propels people into the need or the wish to cultivate an inner practice is it crisis or is it <laughs> grace and i just suddenly realized the world is a beautiful place and i want to kind of meditate on a tulip or like what 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 is it that brings people into a, the need for a practice or the wish to have a practice it, it's all the above and, and, and it's, it's almost unique for everyone and yet it's a common path in a way. It's both a unique and a common path. Sometimes it's a health crisis and that health can be mental health, emotional health, physical health issues. It can be a teacher, you know, when the student's ready, the teacher will arrive. It can be somebody having a book fall off a shelf onto their head. It can be a breakdown in so many ways. It can be a breakthrough in so many ways. So it's very, very broad, but when someone's on that path, there are many paths up the mountain as, as you and I both know. So it's what path is, is best suited for that individual. Uh, and it may be something that is ancient and such as yoga or a spiritual tradition, or it could be a, a real smorgasbord. Really, it, it, it's what opens someone up to their own inner discovery. Of, of that oneness within that right process. and sometimes i think it can also be developing mastery in a particular discipline that also mm -hmm. like if you become a an ace mathematician or a wonderful musician that might also be your path right indeed because one of the things that you know scientific evidence is now showing across all scales of existence and numerous fields of research is that first of all information is the most foundational stuff of reality and by that i don't mean random data i mean meaningful information then that information is expressed as energy matter and in a different way but a complementary way of space and time but music number and geometry and music are universal languages they're not something that humans have invented the deeper and deeper we go into the nature of reality as the ancients understood they are foundational and so we've sort of discovered them rather than invented them. and so musician music, art, being in nature, all of these, I think, remind us and re-heart us of, of remembering who we really are. Right, then can I ask you also what it, what it was for you? 
like you said you said at the beginning or when i read your introduction at the yeah. beginning that you were one of the the top uk business women and now you live a i don't know if you feel like it's a different life or an evolution from that life but maybe you could just tell us a bit about your own story of moving from from being very much immersed in, in as a businesswoman in, in the world of, of corporations to the kind of work you do now, which is much more about, about describing and teaching the unified field. It's been a scenic route, I would say. <laughs> but actually becoming a businesswoman was never on, I, I really didn't have a plan, let's face it. I never really had a plan. Um, I had curiosity. My whole life journey has been one of curiosity. So actually, to go back right to the beginning, um, when I was very young, as, as again you mentioned my bio, I started to have experiences, direct experiences, that were experiencing um, reality beyond this physical plane. I was having precognitive dreams, out-of-body experiences, uh, telepathic experiences, remote viewing, all, many of which, not all of which, many of which were validated. I'd find out afterwards, oh, yes, okay. So I was picking up information from the field that not through my five physical senses. And so that, because I was such a curious kid, that was sort of like a lifelong adventure of, of the nature of reality. But then I went to university, uh, Oxford did physics. Um, the university decided I was not going to become an academic. Um, and so although I was slated to do a PhD then, um, I had a series of health issues, many emotional health issues, and so did not go into academia. But I was really good at maths, because the first year of an Oxford Masters is maths, 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 maths. So I went into business, qualified as an accountant, as you do, and just became promoted and promoted. So um, in the early 90s, I was the, literally the most senior businesswoman in the UK. I'd, I'd literally broke through to be on the board of a, a medium-sized corporation, and I was the first woman to ever do that. So in fact, the business sort of came later, but it was always my curiosity about reality that played then alongside my business career. The business career was brilliant then, because um, latterly, I was responsible as, as chief financial officer board member, group finance director, for $500 million business, 36 countries, doing a lot of work on the strategic and transformation of the company. Um, and so it gave me some really significant transformational leadership skills. So when it was time for me to move beyond business, which I really felt it was because I could feel something much bigger coming down the way, um, I could do those with all those skills of relationships, communication, transformational change in, in my back pocket as it were as tools yeah beautiful and you also mentioned at the beginning of the need for a new story and the story of, of oneness and i wonder if you could also talk with us a bit about the role of story because we, we've also talked before about the difference between a story and the experience of something Yes. And, and where is the, what's the value of story in bridging us into an embodied experience of what we might call oneness or the unified field? How does story play out? Well, the stories we tell are the stories we live by. So if we tell a story of fragmentation, separation, and materiality, that drives our behaviours. That's the story we live by. 
And we now know, both from all the spiritual traditions, but now scientific evidence across many, all scales, that separation's a myth. Reality's real, but separation is a myth. So for me, we need to restore it, to restore. The stories we tell are, you know, for the stories we tell are the stories we've been telling, I, I don't believe we'll survive, let alone thrive as a species. So we need to restory, and it's a story, you know, we can have stories that are fairy stories, or we can have stories that are a beautiful articulation of deep truths. And this is the story I feel we now need to articulate, is the new story, the deep truth. It is both new and ancient of, of unity and oneness. And unity is not uniformity. The beauty of this story is of a universe that exists to evolve, from simplicity to complexity and radical diversity and individuation. So it's a really empowering story, as well as one that I believe can help us restore our relationship with each other and our planetary home, beloved Gaia. And is there, is there a danger that, that we sometimes live in the story, but not in the experience? Like, is there a danger we talk about things, but we don't really sink down to the deeper level of experiencing and embodying them? Is that a, something to watch out for? I think that's hugely important to watch out for. Um, what we do at the Whole World View in our unity community, we talk about serving the understanding, experiencing and embodying of unity awareness. But often, as I say, the stories we tell the stories we live by. So if we tell ourselves a new story and one that is founded in, in deep truths, then for, I would hope for a lot of people that opens a doorway of possibility. It, it, it extends an invitation to join this adventure of, 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 of you know, where we are and where we might be going. And that adventure can only then be experiential. We have to live it. We have to walk along that path. I mean, Buddha once said, you, you don't, um, you, you can't walk the path until you become the path. So it is that beingness and that experience. But I feel a new story, when it's empowering, when it's inspiring, and when it's based on deep truths, extends that invitation to walk that path. Right. Thank you. And, and let's now, let's now focus in a bit about on leadership and on the climate emergency and you've already in a way given us some pointers around leadership you said that it's important to have an inner journey and, and curiosity and a practice that brings us into an experience of oneness i wonder if you think that there are other qualities that leaders of today need that's one question and the other question really relates to to the language i know you also work a lot with language but the language around the climate change climate emergency the sense of urgency we've got 10 years or is it 11 years or is it too late like how, do, how does that that story how does that impact our leadership and the leadership that's required at the moment well to to go back to your first point robin about the, the attributes of leadership in this time um for the last 30 years or so really since the 1970s leadership styles and organizational structures have actually followed the sort of the Newtonian physics of a worldview, which is very me mechanistic. So people become human resources, cogs in the machine. Um, the terminology and the, the, the operational ability of organizations have really followed those, that template. And so the attributes of leadership have been primarily masculine. 
Um, they've been very left brain. They've been about measurement, quantitative rather than qualitative. They've been very proactive. And that's brought a lot of progress and, and, and efficiency. But it's also been very unbalanced. And so for me, what I feel going forward is what I call integrative leadership, where the best of those masculine attributes are retained. But the ones that no longer serve us, we say, thank you very much for getting us this far, and now you can have a rest. And what we bring in to stand alongside the best of the masculine attributes are more feminine attributes. So I talk about an octave of eight of these. Um, servant leader. So one is in service to the greater good rather than leading sort of in a hierarchical way. Um, soul model rather than role model. So instead of a role that is, that is a status-based, it's literally bringing all that you are into that situation, position. Whether you're in a leadership, whatever form, because this is self-leadership as well as spirited leadership. And then there's more about sensing and seeing and bringing in and, shape, and, and space holding and shaping and then sort of stirring and, and, and shaking where necessary. But they're all very much working with that sort of intuitive, experiential, perhaps more feminine attributes in balance with the best of the masculine attributes. And where do you see or who do you see embodying those like on, the, on the, either the world stage or local grassroots initiatives? If you were to name check a few people or places or governments that you feel are, are starting to get that, the need for integrated model of leadership. What comes to mind? I would say uh, Jacinda Erdem in New Zealand is very much so. I think um, I've been working with colleagues in certain uh, organizations such as Patagonia in, in the US. Um, there's quite a lot of, of conscious leadership consultancies that are now really moving forward in this way, such as Peter Matthias, um, Bob Anderson with the Leadership Circle, that are really coming from this perspective of unity and diversity and this integral approach to, to organisations and to leadership. Um, in the UK, Waleda UK is a great pioneer of, of this approach. It has a, a, a female CEO who very much comes from this place. Um, and it, you know, within each of us, as the ancients would say, it's not about so much the gender, it is about the attributes, the masculine and feminine attributes and being in, in balance. That is the key to it. Right. And coming to then to the second part of the question around, around the emergency and the timeline, I wonder what you would say to us about the need to balance a sense of urgency, perhaps, mm -hmm. with the need to remain kind of calm and spacious and innovate and not panic. So. The indigenous leaders say when things get very, very challenging, slow down. Because we know from biological studies is that when we go into panic, and urgency is often ascribed with a sort of emotional panic, we actually become less effective. So it's being engaged, it's about appreciating that indeed we need to act. But when we come from being into the doing, as, as many teachers have understood, we're far more effective. And when we come from that sense of interconnectedness and, and unity, these to me are the responses that we need to make if we are to survive and thrive. So what we're really needing 
is not the old paradigm and the old approaches. We're actually in a way, it seems to me, it sounds a very big picture, but you know, our universe exists to evolve. It's got this incredible innate evolutionary impulse that flows through it, you know, from hydrogen to people, you know, 13.8 billion years of evolutionary progress. So evolution has its own pulse, its own impulse. And biological evolution has brought us to here. But it seems to me that if we are to survive and thrive as a species, we have to consciously evolve. We have to grow up. We have to remember that we are all interconnected. And so that's really where I'm coming from. So for me, when we talk about um, the deep adaptation movement with Jen Vandel, which I think was a, a, a very, very important wake-up call, there are three aspects to that, which are about sort of dealing with, with climate change in terms of reduce and recycle. But I would add a, a fourth are which is revolution of consciousness revolution of our awareness and remembering that we literally are all interconnected yeah that's a lot to think about also like i'm also with this question of, of we have lots of concepts and models and then the need to experience and and yeah and as you say, to experience and to embody and, and what that movement looks like, because also in the world of business, I think people are very quick to kind of grasp onto a model and yeah. say, yeah, well, now I've got it. There's the kind of four of these and there's eight. It's, it's all out here. Yeah. Exactly. But it's all out there. So I'm wondering what, what has been, what, what would be some of the levers or some of the key practices or the aha moments maybe that you catalyze that help people really move from kind of head to heart or move from a kind of cognitive understanding yeah. to a feeling of something and then to the embodiment of something. What, what's that journey look like in your well, experience? First of all, I think there has to be a willingness in, in, in leaders to do that. And it can't be a superficial willingness. It can't be just a yes, okay, I'll, I'll sort of greenwash this or I'll green purpose this. Unless it's authentic, it, it won't work. It will just be out here still. It might be a few bits and pieces, but unless it's authentic, unless there's a real sense of, yes, I'm prepared to change myself, because if I can't change within myself, I will not be able to serve the change in the world that I, I, I seek to, to support, yeah? So it literally goes back to Gandhi, be the change. And that's be the change, whether you are a leader or, or whoever, whatever you are, yeah? So I think that's the key. And I think more and more people are getting to that point. And we were talking earlier about what gets people to that point. What you know, we know is that the, because of this whole mechanistic paradigm that's still playing out there, you know, the hierarchies are still there. People at the leadership level have to run faster and faster and faster. And in a complex world, they have complicated organizations. Complexity is not complication. Complexity is what nature does perfectly. Complication is what humans do not very well. So there's a lot of burnout. There's a massive amount of burnout. There's a massive amount of stress. There's a massive amount of where do we go now? And I think it's that at an organizational level and an individual leadership level that in a lot of cases is driving this okay. Yeah, great. And also use the word growing up, which, which, which spins me into another topic in a way, because 
as you know, Ken Wilber talks about four lines of development, and we could apply this to leadership, the, 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 the need to grow up to kind of do our psychological, emotional development, the need to wake up and do our spiritual practice and, and wake up on that Indeed. level, become more conscious, the need to show up and be present to the needs of the world, and the need to clean up sure. and do our kind of shadow work and look at all our, our dark side as well. And I know you've added a couple of other <laughs> developmental lines, and maybe you could also just speak to us about those for a moment, because I think they're really interesting. Thank you. Well, when I was first aware of, of, of Ken and Dustin Diplomas um, for aspects, as you just described, I just felt something was missing. And I felt it was missing at this time. Perhaps if we go back five years, those four were where we were and where we were still trying to get to, and they still are to a great degree. But it seems to me that when we, within ourselves, move to those four, then something awakens within us. And so the next two are linking up and lifting up. And I've noticed over the last couple of years, there's been a lot more organizational willingness to link up and lift up. That the old competitions, the old I win, you lose, you win, I lose approaches are being seen as part of this whole, you know, unsustainability, just not to be able to be continued. So I've noticed both individually, but far more in terms of organizational willingness to link up and lift up. And then the, the lifting up is the synergies. The lifting up when we link up enables a result and an outcome to be greater than some of its parts. So it's a win-win-win. Um, and that's what I mean by that. But all of the other four are still there, that we have to be doing all of those. But when we get to a point of, perhaps being able to leave some of our egos at the doorstep or in the passenger seat, then the linking and the lifting really can take off. Right, and what we're talking about is the need to transcend paradigms and create some new paradigms in this. And you've talked about the shift from competition to collaboration. Do you feel that is starting to happen? And, and, and also what other paradigms, and you also, in a way you've talked also about the shift from kind of Newtonian mechanistic ways of seeing things to, to a more kind of emergent, unified way of, of experiencing reality. I'm wondering what other paradigms uh, are shifting at this time. Also about synchronicity, like can we engineer synchronicity or is it just an accident? Like why, why do things happen in that kind of way? Maybe you could just talk to us a bit about the kind of paradigm shifts that you feel are happening and are also needed at this time. Well, maybe we can go back to a perception of, of, of our universe being a great thought and being um, essentially coming to being nearly 14, 14 billion years ago in its simplest form but so exquisitely fine-tuned and ordered that it is literally um, exists to evolve and it's been evolving. It has this profound evolutionary impulse ever since from simplicity to complexity and ever greater levels of individuated self-awareness. So my friend Elizabeth Sartoris, who's an evolutionary biologist, talks about when species do grow up, when they have a certain level of maturity that they actually begin to cooperate rather than compete so for example if we go back billions of years the first archaic bacteria were in competition and they just et 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 and a point came where they were beginning to starve and so they began to cooperate and we're a result of that because the mitochondria in our cells 
is a result of an ancient cooperation. And then a further period of evolutionary progress happened and a lot of competition in it. And then the single-celled creatures realized that there was better to cooperate. So there comes a time in, a, in both a biological being and an ecosystem where it moves from youth, rather like a caterpillar eating everything that it can do, but a time comes when that caterpillar then goes into a cocoon and comes out a butterfly. So there's many, many examples of how competition becomes cooperation through a maturation process. And, you know, perhaps that's where we are now, that we realize we, you know, the competition, whether it's for resources or in every other way, is destroying us and destroying our planetary home. We cannot continue where we are. So we either cooperate or we die. And this has been the case of evolutionary progress throughout. David Sloan Wilson, who's a friend and colleague as well, talks about the, 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 the as, as, as systems become more complex, the levels of cooperation and altruism within them actually gives evolutionary benefit. And so I think that's all part of our, pro our process. And I know that's great. And I know I asked you about three questions in one a little while ago, but maybe you could say something to us about synchronicity. Like what yes. is synchronicity and what are the conditions that yes. we can also help to create that maybe amplify the chances of synchronicities happening? Well, first of all, the old paradigm, the old mainstream scientific paradigm of the materialist and separatist and a non-conscious um, universe doesn't have a place for synchronicity. It doesn't have any place for supernormal phenomena and events. But the emergent and the emerging um, whole worldview actually naturally has supernormal phenomena and our abilities, supernormal abilities, but also synchronicities. Because synchronicities don't violate causation, causality within space-time. What they do is because if we go back to this premise that mind and consciousness aren't what we have, they're literally what we in the whole world are, then we call synchronicities to us individually and collectively as experiences. And I think they're way showers to remembering unity if we, take, if we pay attention to them. And in my experience, when we pay attention to them, they literally are way showers, benevolent way showers, but then more come. It's like we're starting to see with new eyes, so we start to experience in new ways. You said we call them to us. How do we do that? I think we do it, we sort of call more of them to us. I mean, for example, if a, synchro, if, if a synchronicity happened, as of course it was, it was a word that was coined by Carl Jung, when he was treating someone and, and you know, there was an event happened and he paid attention to it, he could have quite easily said, oh, and, you know, coincidence yeah just an accident coincidence he didn't he paid attention and when he paid attention to that synchronicity he began to find that more synchronicities happened and so he was more open so it's rather like it was almost like a, a, a bird following a sort of a, a path of, of breadcrumbs you know the more we're open to these experiences the more we seem to call them to us Right, so we have to park the part of us that might be cynical or doubting and be curious and interested in, in, in what seem to be coincidences or accidents or that just happened by chance and say, well, maybe 
but maybe it didn't. And if we're curious about it, then we start to catalyze a field around exactly. us that, makes the, that amplifies the possibility of those things happening. Exactly. And for me, synchronicities are, are amazing way showers. Right. Yeah, as, as is our intuition, because that's the other thing, isn't it? You know, if, we, if we're cynical and we don't trust our intuition and just push it to one side, then we don't gain the benefit of, of the deep insights that, again, in my experience, and I suspect in yours, you know, intuitive insights can be incredibly valuable. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And we tend to override it with our planning mind that says, but I've got a plan to deliver. And then we ignore exactly. the intuitive hunches that are calling us all the time. Exactly. Exactly. And that's what I mean by seeing and sensing. Right. So you also mentioned in passing that, that we have a choice maybe to cooperate or die. Yeah. Which do you think is going to happen? I don't know. I think we're, I think, I don't know. I truly don't know. I wouldn't be doing the work I'm doing around the world if I wasn't optimistic. And the work that I and you and, and many, many colleagues and through our Unity community do is about hope in action. Is hope in action. And what I'm finding certainly over the last couple of years, as I mentioned, many more signs of cooperation, many more signs of linking up and lifting up and the synergies and the, and the progress and the insights that can come from that. And I also, we were together last week and we, had a, we did a constellation, blind constellation. And what was clear from that? Maybe, maybe for people, I'm just wanting to pause you. Maybe <laughs> some, of the, some of the people who are listening may not know what you mean by a constellation or by a blind constellation. Could you just kind of attempt to summarize what that is as a practice or as a process? It, yeah, it's a very powerful and experiential way of gaining insights to questions. So basically, people, individual people, become a representative of a question or um, a situation or aspects or attributes of that situation and then there's a sort of an experiential movement and response to that question that plays out rather like a play um, to offer an answer and a blind constellation is when you don't know what you're actually representing until part way through the process and what we did was to discover through a particular process of how we might find ways through an emergency into an emergence that the youth, the young people are very, very open to this new story of unity. And if we can find ways of articulating it, we can really, really support their hope in action. What also came through was those leaders who are questioning, who are saying that the old paradigm doesn't work anymore. Those leaders came together with those people who are questioning in education in a very powerful coordination and again focused on young people. So what came out of that constellation is we all have work to do, but this is the, the, the direction of travel. Yeah, thank you. Maybe, maybe the last question I want to ask you is about the nature of hope. You talked about hope in, hope in action. And you also mentioned Jem Bendel, who I also interviewed for this series a bit earlier. And 
you know, he has a particular take on hope. I also interviewed Joanna Macy, who also has, who talks about active hope. Yes. But like Jem said, and I think I'm paraphrasing him correctly when he said he's a bit suspicious of hope because hope can also be a kind of a, a way of avoiding our fear of death. That we kind of pump ourselves up with hope, it's all going to be okay and, and we'll be hopeful because we don't really want to look at the possibility that we're not going to make it and that actually death and mayhem are, are beckoning. So I just want to offer you the last word at, on hope at this point. <laughs> well, first of all, I, I actually wrote a book called Hope, Healing Our People and Earth. So for me, that sense of healing our people and earth is, is, is a foundation of, of hope. And it's not, I, I, I take his, his point very well. I personally don't have any fear of, that, of death at all. So I'm not coming from that fear. I'm also not coming from the fluffy bunny version of, oh, it'll be all right. I, I think with Joanna, it's hope in action. It's active hope. And there's something about hope that without hope, we, we don't act. We don't act. We're bereft. Whereas if we have that, that tiny spark of hope within us, it somehow gives us the sense, it gives us the inspiration to act. And even if we don't survive as a species, surely, surely we can do all we can to restore the damage we've done to our planetary home and her other children. Surely we owe that to our mother. Yeah, thank you. A very touching note to, to close on, I think. And I'm, I just became aware as you were speaking that as we're speaking, of course, this will be shown and, and released weeks and months ahead, maybe. But as we're speaking, the climate change conference in Madrid has just started. And that's a place where people go with hope to do exactly what you've described, to, to heal and to bring about the restoration that's needed at this time. So we work at our different levels as politicians and civil society and activists and exactly. negotiators meeting as we also talk here about the unified field and what's needed to catalyze the change. Thank you so much, Jude. It's been a fantastic time to talk to you. I knew it would be. And thank you so much also for the work you do in the world to bring together these different strands as a scientist, as a cosmologist, as a spiritual activist, as someone who is bringing hope and action into so many parts of the world. And thank you for the work you do. And we wish you every success in that. And thank you for your time with us today. Thank you, Robin. Thank you so much.